Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Employee to Boss podcast. My name is Haley Hayhurst and I am your host. I am very excited for you to listen to today's episode because it is very different than my usual pace. Today we are going to slow down and talk to Shannon McFarland. Shannon is a full-time photographer who started her business as a side hustle in 2009 and then went full-time in 2016. She is a memorial artist and the owner of Slobber Lens. So she works as a photographer, storyteller, and memorial artist who honors grief and love and human-animal relationships. She started on this journey when She was told when she was pregnant that her son was incompatible with life. And luckily, he is okay today. But when he was in the NICU, she started taking photos of him and things around him. And other people saw this and wanted that for themselves, their family. And so then she decided that this was going to be what she did. She was going to take photos of families in grief in these horrible times of their life and she was going to capture these beautiful raw moments for them. She has since pivoted more into human-animal relationships, which we talk a lot about how she decided to pivot, but she's just so amazing. We connected on Facebook. She lives in the state of Washington as well and We're going to have to meet up for coffee sometime soon because I just love her energy and I cannot wait for you to listen. So let's get right into this episode with Shannon McFarland. I'm so glad to meet you. It's it's neat when you meet people online and you just know that, oh, I'm going to really get along with this person. I like that feeling a lot and I I have had that with you. So yay for that. Oh gosh, my career story is just so odd because it's um, not conventional at all. But currently I am a photographer and artist and I started my photography business in 2009. So I've been at it for a while, although at the time it was a side thing. It was more of a, I had a business license and I was paying taxes, but I had a full-time job that paid me well. And that's what I considered my profession to be. I was a person who responded to disasters and emergencies for the state of Washington. Um, So a lot of wildfires and earthquakes and floods and uh, really pleasant things like that. It turned out that that type of work was really hard on my nervous system because there's a lot of you're always waiting for the absolute worst thing to happen for one. And that's mm-hmm. just mentally hard. But the other is that there's this, the, the actual waiting, the being on call all the time, never knowing when you're going to have to go in to the emergency operations center at two o'clock in the morning because something really big has just happened and you've got to be there. There are 9 million people in the state of Washington that are counting on you to make sure that things get to the right places when they need to be there. And there was a particularly busy year. I had just had my son, so I had the stress of pregnancy and being a new parent. And then I was working this job and we had a big year with wildfires that year. And that was the year of the 520 landslide that Mm -hmm. was in 2014. 
So it was a lot of extra work and I got really, really sick. And my doctor told me one day, she said, this grief that you've chosen for yourself is not compatible with your health. So you're going to have to figure out what choice you want to make. Do you want to stay here and, and continue to work and continue to be really sick? Um, sick as in, like, there were days that I couldn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I had this horrible joint pain and extreme exhaustion and fatigue and fevers and headaches and just a lot of stuff that didn't, it wasn't conventionally diagnosable. That was a hard time because, like a lot of people, I big part of my identity was my job. Right. And I had a master's degree in the field and I was establishing myself and things were going so well. And it just seemed like a total waste to walk away from all of that because my nervous system was having a hard time. So um, it took me about a year and a half of trying to limp through a solution oh to realize, ah, you know what? She's right. I can't, I can't do this. And I am eventually going to work myself to the point where I'm not able to work at all. Mm -hmm. So I um, decided that I was just going to stay home for a little while and recover. And then planning to go back to work in that field or something similar. And then I once I was at home and I realized how different I could feel, I thought, okay, now I really understand what my doctor was saying. And so I decided to try to take something with the side business that I had had for years and, and do something with it because I, I wanted to contribute to the income of the household I needed to. And that's kind of how it all got started. That's you know, a lot of people have similar stories to that where their job is literally destroying them, but it's something that you absolutely love. Like, otherwise you wouldn't have chosen it in the first place. And so stepping away from it is something that takes a lot of courage, but, you know, just like you just said, you had some sort of side hustle set up. So you just decided to go all into it. Was that already, like, at what point, in your life did you set up the side hustle that we're going to talk so much about that was in that was in 2009 was when I started it and when I decided to stay home and consider other alternatives that was 2016 so there was a a long time that I was running this artsy photography side business just as a it was a fun distraction Mm-hmm. And because of that, I had built up a lot of pretty terrible habits when it comes to business, you know, not being fully responsible with my bookkeeping and mm-hmm. um, not really paying attention a lot to profit because I wasn't interested in profit. I just wanted to do it for fun, all of that kind of stuff. And so I think in a lot of ways, it might have been easier for me if I had just started over <laughs> because there was there was a lot of mess that I had to clean up. And I, you know, the realization that, oh, okay, this thing that has been a convenient distraction for me and a hobby up until now needs to become something else and it needs to happen quickly. So what am I doing? Yeah, a convenient distraction. That's what a lot of people start their side hustles for, especially if they have like 
a boring job or an intense mm-hmm. job like you had, just like a fun outlet. And so, you know, side hustles don't always have to be monetized. Sometimes they can be just like you were saying, just doing it for fun, not caring about yeah. the bookkeeping, not caring about, you know, how much profit you're making. It's just a fun outlet. But there is a point where you may want to pivot and go full into it. And then you're like, oh my gosh, why did I not just hire a bookkeeper from the beginning? Yeah. And I, you know, I was doing, I was doing the legal stuff that I needed Mm -hmm. to do. I was careful about that. Thank goodness. But the, I had not imposed order because that, I think that was part of the fun distraction was that right. there wasn't, I can do this and I'm the no boss, rules. so I can do it the yeah. way that I want, right? There's nobody telling me that I have to do it a certain way. Definitely. Yeah. So, okay. Tell us about your side hustle because I'm so excited for you to give all of the details. Well, what was your side hustle and now is your full-time business? Okay. So when I started way back, I was just a garden variety photographer. I was the kind of photographer that said, oh, well, I specialize in families and babies and pets and children and weddings, which really means that I didn't have any specialty Mm -hmm. at all, that I wanted to be a generalist and I wanted to be whatever it was that people wanted me to be, which sucked. And I, you know, I did enjoy photographing all kinds of things, but I was so disconnected from what really was fulfilling for me because I was so delighted when anybody said, we'd like to hire you for something. I was just tickled, right? Which is how it works in the, in the early stages. So there was around the time that my son was born, which was 2013. And after that, we had a really difficult pregnancy with him. When I was still pregnant with him about halfway through, there were a few doctors that said, he has an incompatible with life diagnosis. Mm-hmm. meaning that they fully intended him to die in utero or that they expected that he would die within his first year of life. So they didn't expect him to be born alive. And we're trying to get us to prepare for all of this. And um, there was a lot of personal growth that happened during that time because that's what hard things do in most cases. And one of the things that I leaned on during that time when we were in the hospital and for all of the hard days is that I would pull out my camera and I would just look for a way to see things differently. And when I was, when he was in the neonative intensive care unit, the NICU, I had my camera there with me and I would photograph him, but I would photograph a lot of the stuff that was around us. I would photograph the equipment. I would photograph um, some of the, the gifts that people had brought in for us that were sitting on the windowsill or little things like that. And other people were watching this and asked, could you come and would you mind coming to photograph my daughter or my mm-hmm. twins? And that's how my shift started, that mm-hmm. I started to feel connected with this need to be present for people that feel like they are isolated and that they're having a really hard time and there's so many feelings that they have and they they can't quite sort through them all but it just feels like nobody else understands them 
and the people that they've leaned on for so long, their family and their close friends are now looking for ways to not interact with them because it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the photographer that is with people that are freshly styled and wearing clothes that they're not going to wear again, standing in this massive field that they don't ever go to for any mm -hmm. other reason. That all feels so trite to me now. And I, what I want to do is show families that I see them and that their stories matter and that whatever it is that they're experiencing, whether it feels great or it doesn't, is important and it's a part of their history as a family that is worth revisiting, if nothing else, for the need to process it. Because we process things when we tell stories and when we look at photographs, we tend to be a part of the story, even if we aren't talking to each other with words. Um, so that's when I started moving things around and I decided, you know, I'm going to photograph, I'm going to photograph sick kids. I'm going to photograph people in hospice. I'm going to photograph funerals. And I did all of that. And I'm still doing all of that. What I've done though, for the most part is also shift that back toward families that include animals. Because a lot of the work with humans is emotionally devastating. Right. And because I know that when I work with families that are caring for dogs or cats or horses or turtles or whatever, that it's an easier way to start the conversations about what life really means to them. And, you know, some of that heavier stuff that they may not realize that they haven't thought about. But then this dog comes in and they've been together for 16 years and, you know, through all of the ugly college years and the the mid-20s where things were so confusing and now they're married and they have kids or, or whatever it is that they're deciding on and they're realizing this this part of my life is coming to an end and I need to figure out how to ground myself. And also just being witness to their enormous grief around this animal that is dying when other people are going to tell them, well, it's just a dog. You can adopt another dog in six months when you're ready or, you know, it's time for you to move on. I'm tired of you being so sad. <laughs> Stuff like that. All of those um, things that don't help anyone, but people just no, seem to no, say. No, no, they don't. And it's just, a, it's just an assertion of you need to conform to what is more comfortable for me, for me to, to share my life with you. And mm -hmm. gosh, that just feels really terrible to hear from somebody that you love and trust. So as a photographer, that's what I'm going for. I want, I want to witness people in the most compassionate, empathetic way and give them something that shows them the things that they might not, they might not see in themselves because most people don't really enjoy being photographed. And I don't always photograph the humans, but even when I don't, they still wind up showing up in the photo somehow because you can see how the animal is is so relaxed and you just know that this is someone who feels really loved and cared yeah. for and for the person to see that and for me to say this is what I noticed when I was with you it makes a teeny tiny bit of difference yeah yeah so when you go into these photo shoots with 
families that are just not in the best place that they've been in in their life. There has to be a way that you separate your own emotions from the business and, you know, don't go in there with like such an open heart, right? Or maybe that is what you do. I would love to hear about the strategies that you go through to get yourself ready to go into one of these photo shoots when you know it's going to be very emotionally draining. Yeah, um, that is an interesting question. When I when I was doing more work in hospitals with kids, um, it was very natural for me to relate to a lot of the stuff that the parents were experiencing because I have, for all intents and purposes, I have a sick kid. He's medically exceptional. Sometimes we're at the hospital for a couple weeks at a time. It happens. So seeing seeing other humans with circumstances similar to mine suffering the way that they were, I could not help but feel a lot of stuff. And so I'm typically hanging back on the, the walls of the room and trying to be as invisible as I can and also just sniffling once in a while and mm-hmm. occasionally wiping away tears. And I cry a lot. I cry a lot when I work. I cry a lot when I get home. <laughs> I cry a lot on the way from where I've been to the way home. Um, and I remember there were a couple of nurses specifically that were really hard on me and they chided me and they said, you know, you're never gonna, you're not cut out for this work. You don't belong here. You don't need to be here because the families need to see people around them who are strong. Mm-hmm. They need us to be strong for them. And they are uncomfortable when other people are crying because we need to make space for what they're feeling and not what we're feeling. And I thought about that and I felt, I felt a lot of shame around it. And then I realized, you know, this is, this is how I work. And by me having my own emotional moment, I'm not taking anything away from them. I'm not crying in such a way that says, look at me, tend to me. I need emotional tenderness and responsiveness right now. I'm continuing to work. I am allowing what I'm experiencing to be a part of my experience. And I'm bringing all of my own experiences to this because I can't separate myself emotionally from this work. And the day that I do is the day that I should stop doing it because it requires emotion. And for me to come in with a very clinical approach and to think that by cleaving off what I feel and keeping it boxed up and out of sight is going to be helpful. I'm, I'm really cutting myself off from doing my best work. And I think that um, after years of being a, a really champion level stuffer of emotions, I mean, I was, I was top notch. I was really good at it. I didn't deal with anything. I just, shoved it somewhere and I moved on Mm -hmm. and um, that stuff came back in a big way when I wasn't expecting it and when I wasn't prepared for it and it just came and sat on my face and said you will acknowledge me (laughs) I would say oh my gosh yes 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 (laughs) like if I have to (laughs) that's so funny yeah and it's I've learned that it's so much easier for me to to let that stuff have the space that it needs when it arrives. And there are occasions where I have to say, okay, you know, I, I need to do this thing. And I know that if I am 
in this state that this particular thing is going to be more complicated or harder. So I'm going to set all of this stuff aside and I'm going to finish this thing and then I will come back to these feelings and I will look into them and give them space and allow them to move around and then we'll be good. Typically, before I work with somebody, I, I say to them, I disclose, hey, I'm a crier. I'm going to show up. I'm going to get emotional. When you're telling me stories, I am going to cry. You're going to hear me sniffling in the room somewhere. If you are uncomfortable with that, I understand. Mm -hmm. And I want to respect what feels right for you because this is your experience, not mine. On the other hand, if you are uncomfortable with this, then I'm probably not the person that you want here. And what people usually tell me is that whether they're dealing with veterinarians or doctors and nurses, that it's refreshing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So one thing we touched on earlier was how you started getting the clients that you work with just through sharing your own photos and experiences. And so I'm really interested how you've, you know, built this business around something that not a lot of people know they need or not a lot of people know even exists. You know, my cousin's baby was just in the hospital and I think like something like this would have been amazing for her. Her baby is fine, but I think like she would have never even known that a service like yours ever existed. So how did you kind of start building that, letting people know? And I'm sure referrals were a big, big part of that. Yeah, referrals are always been at the heart of things. Um, when I'm in a hospital, I have this big, you know, I'm a photography geek, so I have a lot of stuff, right? And in the hospital, I don't want to be rolling around with my back, so I carry everything on my person. I have this mm -hmm. tactical photography vest type thing, which looks very badass, if I may say so. And I've got cameras strapped to me. And so people see me in the hallways and they know one, I'm a photographer, right. um, but also because I'm on the surgery floor or the infusion floor or something like that, that I'm not there for happy family portraits. Mm -hmm. you know, so they're kind of putting things together and then they start asking questions. So I was getting questions from the nurses because somebody in the room down the hall would see me come in and sign in and do all my sanitation protocol and um, want to know what's going on. What is she doing here? what's that all about? How can I, how can I do that? So I have this really great network of people like nurses and social workers and grief counselors and veterinarians and hospice workers that know of me and refer people to me, which is right now the only way that I accept clients because this work is so incredibly sensitive and the match between the family and me is really important, I want to make it, it needs to feel more like family than like a business transaction. So I, mm -hmm. it's hard for me to work with people that see my website or something like that and say, oh yeah, I want to sign up for this. I tried that and I would get people calling me or sending me messages that were um, just really not, not people that I wanted to do this with. Yeah. There was a lot of, um, there are some families where this is very 
controversial because somebody loudly and loudly exclaims, this is inappropriate. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? And that's a lot to manage for me. And it's a lot to manage for the family because we're just bringing in this whole other level of difficulty that doesn't need to be there. So having things go through referral has been really helpful and building that network has taken a long time and it still has lots of room to grow. We all have lots of room to grow, but it's made things so much easier because now I can trust my referral partners to recommend me to people that they're pretty sure are going to be a good fit. Mm -hmm. And then that's less of a screening thing for me because I know, hey, this person that I already trust and have worked with before thinks that I'm a good match for this family. And then we meet up and sure enough, that's, that's the case. Right. And it's a really, um, that's something that I've just completely removed from my processes because I don't, my referral partners do all of that work for me, which is, oh my gosh, I feel, I feel so lucky on one hand, but then I look back and I realize, oh, I worked really hard to make that possible. So I'm glad that it's working the way that it is. Absolutely. I mean, referrals are so amazing in business just because it's one of those things where they can vouch for you, you can vouch for them. And like, it's just this back and forth trust that is so different than a new client coming in and talking to you. And I'm sure just like you were saying, you know, not all of them are a fit. So if you can eliminate having to even, you know, be like, no, actually I can't work with you. Or actually like, I don't think this is a good fit, especially in your field, because it's so personal, right? For me, if I don't want to work with a podcast, I can just say, oh, I actually don't know if I'm the best fit for you. Here's someone else who can help you. But for you, it's like very like, like heart wrenching almost like trying to say no to these people who are in maybe the worst part of their whole life. And so, you know, in business, sometimes we have to do those things that just feel right to us rather than the conventional practices. And just like you were saying in the beginning, you left your, your job that you loved because it wasn't good for your health. And then you went full time into this and you've made so many changes and pivots and, you know, made it to where you really are loving what you're doing on a referral basis. But there had to be some times where the best practice was what you felt rather than what was actually like typical in the photography industry. How did you address going through those things or think about it? What was your mindset? My mindset was um, stress eating. (laughs) Panic. Um, feeling like I was never going to make it work and that what I was doing was ridiculous. I mean, honestly, that's what it was like because I, this isn't, there aren't established practices for this kind of work. And it's, um, you know, even on the photography side with the technical stuff, most of what I'm doing is in very low light conditions. Mm-hmm. I am photographing people that have some challenging facial expressions. There's a lot of delicacy in I don't photograph people that are ugly crying, but I also want to honor the emotion that's there. So I want people to look 
when they see the photographs, I want them to feel like themselves and I want them to be connected with that moment, with whatever is happening. Um, but also <laughs> honor, honor their privacy and give them space. So it's a really weird, it's very different from something like a wedding or a birthday or graduation or just family photographs. And then there's the you know, the back office kinds of things where you're coming up with policies and things like that for navigating all of this stuff and pricing. And I started out by trying to apply the things that other people were doing just as different types of photographers. And it was miserable. It was honestly miserable. I I did courses and workshops and I had mentoring and coaches and I read all kinds of books and I finally got to the point where I realized, you know, none of this feels right. None of this feels appropriate for what it is that I'm doing and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop doing this stuff and I'm going to start doing things that make more sense to me. And it, it was years of going through that. I I hear a lot of mindset people that talk about how, well, you just, you know, you just change the way that you're thinking, but maybe that kind of encouragement works for other people. It does not work for me. And it was just a long process of realizing these are all the things that I've tried that have not been helpful. And if nothing else, I can look at this and say that the solutions that other people have are not my solutions. There is nothing that anybody else is doing that I can take and apply without making huge adaptations to it for my own business. So I'm still open to learning from people, from looking at best practices. I'm also very selective about what I choose. And now I'm doing things just when I make a change, I do just one little thing at a time so that I can be more scientific about it and see, is this making a difference or isn't it? Yeah. And how does it feel? Because if I change just one thing, then I know that if there's any sort of change in the result in the process and how I feel and how the families I serve feel, then that's, that's due to that one little thing. But if I'm implementing this whole new program, I'm trying to overhaul the system, then I don't really know what's responsible for what. Um, so it is, it's been a really difficult time. And I still have lots of days where I think this is ridiculous. I can't make this work. Well, I think all entrepreneurs have that doubt in their mind. Yeah. But it's just like keeping working towards the big goal. And, mm-hmm. you know, what you just said reminded me of like an elimination diet where you're trying to figure out what you're allergic to or what you can eat. But instead, it's the other way around. Like, if I add this to my business, does it work? Do I like it? Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of new entrepreneurs listen to this or a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, people in their nine to five who want to become entrepreneurs. And I think the biggest thing people can take away from that part of this conversation is it doesn't have to be a complete transformation overnight it could be you you know you stop photographing families and just start photographing kids and pets and you know it could be like simple things you can still be a photographer for all except one 
one like industry or whatever and Mm -hmm. then just start taking those out into until you get to where you want to be and just like you were saying nothing that you were doing of courses workshops they really resonated with you and that's why I love doing this podcast because I'm talking to people from so many different industries and there's so many things I've learned from people who are not in the podcasting industry or even the social media industry. I've learned stuff from fitness instructors, the way that they run their businesses or, you know, all of these different, the word is called info sponging. And that's really why I started this podcast because, you know, McDonald's got their idea of a drive-through from a bank and Mm -hmm. just like random things like that we can learn so much from different industries. And so I totally get what you mean, where if you were looking at other photographers, of course, you were not fully resonating because you're not just like other photographers. You had to look outside of your industry to see what they were doing before you can really nail down one thing to do. When I see people selling things online where they're saying, this is the solution I guarantee your success if you implement these 14 steps in 90 days. And I get that there's, there's a market for that. And there are people that need that sort of specific starting point so that they can start to learn what their personal style is and what feels right for them. But it's, those can't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. No matter what the promises are, they cannot work for everyone because we all have We have our own individual personalities. We have our business personalities. We have our different skill sets. And you just can't say that this works for everybody and mash all of that stuff into one place. So I think that's really, you know, in the early stages of building a business, even in the intermediate stages, it's so easy to get swayed by that stuff and to kind of lose who you are in all of that because you start adopting all of these things that other people are doing and thinking okay well this is this is going to be what turns everything around for me and I want to celebrate the people that that works for honestly I wish it had been that easy for me Mm -hmm. but it wasn't and I think it's it's nice to have conversations like this where we can be realistic and honest about what really it is like to build something when what's out there just isn't doesn't seem to be helping and you have to create it yourself and that's that's why we get into business right because we want to do things our way because we have this drive to have autonomy and that's exciting I agree full-heartedly that's the big thing, right? You started your business because you wanted to do, you didn't want to follow a boss anymore. You didn't want to work for someone else's dream. You want to work for your dream. And of course, hiring coaches or mentors that can get you there. If you're just completely, you know, you need someone to help you get to where you want to be. Cause business isn't just like this overnight thing that everyone understands it's can be really confusing. I've hired numerous coaches in the past off of very specific issues that I was having, like a money coach, someone to help me with my courses, mindset, all of those things, because it didn't make any sense to me. And rather than doing all that research, I was like, I value my time. Let me just Mm -hmm. hire someone for the time being and see where this takes me. 
And every time I've invested, I've been able to get ahead of where I was before. Well, I've absolutely loved everything about this conversation, your story, how unique your your business is, and just like the backstory of how you got started. So where can people find you? Where can people connect with you? And, you know, if this is something that they're interested in, I know that you are referral only, but if they're in the state of Washington or just want some more information about working with someone like you, how can they connect with you? Um, If you are looking for a website, my website is slobberedlens.com. And that's exactly how it sounds like big masses of drool on a lens. (laughs) Um, You can find me on Facebook at the same place. I'm not on Instagram or anything else because I just can't be bothered (laughs) with doing more than one form of social media. Um, And my email address is in both places. So you can find me that way as well. And if you're looking for services for yourself, you are welcome to send me a message somehow through email or, or Facebook, and I will uh, help you get what you need. Awesome. So I love to end every single episode with you sharing three actionable tips for the audience to start with today. The first one that I have is about making lists of people. So I know that as a business owner or just as a human, I'm going to have days where things feel really hard and I need to talk about stuff with someone. And I want to talk about things with someone so that I feel heard and seen and validated. Um, I have days where I'm trying to figure out how to do something and I'm wrestling with a big problem. And I want to talk to somebody to kind of talk through the steps and get someone else's perspective on things and figure it out. And those are two really different kinds of people that are good at those conversations. So I keep lists of people that are on, on these different teams, right? The engineers and the cheerleaders. And I also have a list of a no list because what's happened is that I have mistakenly gone to the wrong kind of person in my life mm-hmm. for hoping for a particular kind of conversation that that person is not skilled at having. I know that there are people in my life who are brilliant strategists. They are, they are engineers. They want to take things apart and put them back together. I can come to them with something that's hard for me and say, this is what I'm experiencing right now. This is what I've tried. This is where I'd like to be. Can I talk through this with you? And oh my goodness, they light up. They get so excited. Yes, let's get to the solution, right? I don't want to go to that person when I'm having a hard day. And I just want someone to say, yeah, I'm looking around at what you're seeing and this does in fact suck. And I'm sorry. Because on those days, I don't want someone to rush me to a solution. I want mm. someone to just empathize. Absolutely. So I know that when I keep these lists, that I have them in front of me and when I feel moved to talk to somebody about a particular thing, I go to the list because I want to make sure that I'm going to the right type of person for the thing that I'm hoping to get from the conversation. If I go to the 
a person that is not skilled in the way that I need that skill, it's going to be a lot harder for me and I'm going to make the situation worse for myself. But I also keep a list of, it's a no list. Those are the people that I, I know as much as I love them and enjoy having them in my life. I can't talk to them about business stuff. I just can't because they're going to tell me, well, you know, you never should have done this in the first place. Or when are you going to get a real job? Or I can't believe you have a master's degree that you're not using. Thanks. That's super helpful. Exactly what you needed, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I have that no list. And these are, these are people that are, like I said, they're very, very dear to me and I honor them in lots of other ways in my life, but I know that I can't give them that space because it's going to make things worse for me. That's a great, that's a great tip. Those lists really help me. Um, Another thing that I find is helpful for me is that as I've been going through all of the business stuff and the coaching and there's the, the general advice guidance that you need to have your elevator pitch and that your elevator pitch basically goes, I'm so-and-so and I help this kind of person in this type of situation do this type of thing and feel this way. And I tried that and it felt, oh, it felt so slimy. It just felt wrong. It didn't matter how I worded it. It felt wrong. So I changed the way that I thought about it. And I thought, okay, well, you know, when I'm saying this, I'm making it about me, what I do. And what I really want to do is center this on the person who's looking for someone like me. And that changed a lot about how open I am to talking to people because I, I don't feel like I'm trying to sell myself now and how great I am or what I can do. I am focused on how the other person is feeling and what the other person is experiencing. So I will say things like, um, you know, people who have kids that are in the hospital with organ transplant are, they're looking to find me or people that are doing hospice care for their dogs. They come and find me. And these are the things that I do with them. So I don't, I don't ever say that I'm helping people with something because I don't really think that I'm helping people with something. I'm, I'm giving them something. And then I'm mostly giving them space to be themselves and to um, to process stuff on their own timeline because they can come back to the photographs and revisit things as often as they need to. Mm-hmm. So that for me has really helped. Another example of how the the convention isn't always the thing that fits. Right. Yeah. You were in charge of making it feel right for you. Okay, those tips are so amazing. Thank you for sharing those. You're welcome. Awesome. So thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been such a beautiful conversation. I am so excited for people to listen to this just because there's so much they can learn from this conversation, you know, opening their hearts and doing what feels right to them and, you know, starting a business, even when it's not even like a typical business yet being the first in the field. So thank you so much for sharing everything. And we have to catch up sometime in person since we live so close to each other. We're going to have to get coffee one day. (laughs) I know it's so cool to live close to somebody in this space. That's 
that's very exciting. Yes, it really is. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Employee to Boss podcast. If you made it to the end of this episode, I hope that you implement the actionable steps from this week's experts so you can get started with your business today. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Employee to Boss podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps more than you could ever imagine. Remember, a little progress each day leads to big results. We come out with a new episode every Tuesday. To access our show notes, transcripts, and courses, please check out EspressoPodcastProduction.com.